You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Several weeks ago, we started a series in 1 Kings called Heading Toward Exile. And we're using the stories of First and Second Kings for just a few more months here into the next summer to look at what does it look like to live amidst decline. Now, we haven't seen a ton of decline yet. We have a few more hints of it today in today's passage. But really, this is the height of Israel's power, and we're going to read about that right now. So this is 1 Kings 4. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I will tell you where I'm going. We're going to start in verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadak and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Now skip down to verse 20 of chapter 4. 1 Kings 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsah to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. This is the word of the Lord. There's a whole cottage industry of books on leadership. I wonder if you've heard of any of these more famous ones. John Maxwell and his 21 indispensable qualities of a leader. There's Stephen Covey and his seven habits of highly effective people. Even Jim Collins has several books, good to great. Built to Last. Recently, Brene Brown's come out with a book, Dare to Lead. I wonder if you've heard of any of these books. If you have other leadership books, I'd encourage you, come up and talk to me afterwards. I'm curious what you would say. This is a great leadership book. And far from being skeptical of those kinds of leadership books, I love them. I think they can be really, really helpful. But the fact that there's a whole cottage industry, I think, proves that good leadership really matters to people. You can go into an airport bookstore and half the books are about good leadership. If you've ever served under a bad leader, you know that good leadership matters to you. If you've ever flourished under a good leader, you know that good leadership matters to you. To the extent that you have any leadership, a good leader always wants to grow and get better at being a leader. We want to be better leaders. And this is a passage about good leadership. Of course, this passage is not an exhaustive summary of all the qualities that a good leader exhibits. But this is Israel at its height. And this is Solomon using good leadership 
for the sake of the whole kingdom. So this morning, I'm going to look at three qualities of good leadership. Good leadership administrates well. Good leadership is temporary. And good leadership results in communal joy. Good leadership administrates well, is temporary, and results in communal joy. So first, let's look at the fact that good leadership administrates well. That's a big focus of this passage. Because administering well is about the division of labor. And that's why we had all of those names we saw in the first six verses of chapter 4. These are effectively Solomon's cabinet secretaries, we might think of the modern American president today. So we've got the high priest and other priests. We've got secretaries who would have had managerial responsibilities. We've got recorders who would have had legal responsibilities, and on and on and on. People who would lead in the palace, army commanders, etc. And these are all important people to Solomon's reign. What the narrator is trying to show us is that Solomon is not just ruling by fiat. He's not just saying, do this, and everything's all about Solomon. And he's not just ruling by charisma either. He's ruling well through other people. This is accentuated in some verses that we didn't read. In verses 7 through 19, we skipped over them. A lot more names are there as well. And naturally, we would just kind of gloss over it if we were reading this by ourselves. And what you read about, beginning in verse 7, are these officers. Now, what did these officers do? They were in charge of 12 different regions across Israel, and each of them had responsibility for one month out of the year to make sure the best grain and meats got to the king's palace. Effectively, these officers were Israeli IRS agents of joy. But the narrator is highlighting it to say, look, this is a good aspect of leadership and administration, that they have a really clear system for taxation and making sure that the king's largesse remains. This division of labor was a key part of Solomon's effective leadership. This leads us to make several observations about such good leadership. The first is this. In, in the division of labor, every good leader knows that every person is important. There's a role for everyone to play and every single role matters. And Solomon knows this. Because every person matters to Solomon, he, he cherishes it because he knows every person matters to God. In good leadership, every person matters. Another observation is that God delights in order. Just like God brought order out of chaos in creation back in Genesis 1, God likes to make sure that things work orderly. He doesn't just work in spontaneity. He can work through order. God delights in it. God likes order. Any organization that really has more than 12 people, so say I, needs some kind of effective organization and leadership, and God delights in that. So related to that, governments or churches or schools or businesses that rely completely on a cult of personality are doomed to fail. If you're just relying on one personality to succeed, it's not going to last. It's not going to sustain. That's why I'm reaching for this water right now because I'm not going to make it. That's why it's so important that Solomon is administering through other leaders. Though these are not household names anymore, it's important that we read them to know that this is not all on Solomon. Excuse me. This division of labor can be seen in a lot of ways in our own time. It's a fairly mundane observation. You've got the well-ordered assembly line. 
let's say you've got a business project team where you've got a leader, you've got a taskmaster, you've got a business analyst, and on and on and on. Let's say you're on a board, there's a chairman, a treasurer, a secretary. This is normal division of labor that we see in everyday human endeavors. But it's amazing how much we don't pivot to this normal administration, isn't it? I bet you can think of how often the leader tries to do it all themselves. Or the leader who doesn't trust others so doesn't delegate. Or the leader who so delegates that they never check in on the person that they delegate to that that person doesn't feel supported at all. Or the leader who is afraid to lead at all and just flounders without telling anybody because they're so afraid of being found out. The normal division of labor, a leader leading through other leaders, is actually more rare than we think. In church life, one of the reasons we read the Romans 12 passage about spiritual gifts is that every person has a role to play. Because every individual matters to God, every person has a role to play. I know I get up here and preach most weeks, but there are people you never see doing key roles every Sunday morning, especially with us being a mobile church and not having our own place to worship. It requires a lot of people. 60 to 70% of the adults in our church have some kind of volunteer role. We'd love for that number to be 100%. That's a really high percentage, though. You talk to the average church leader, and we're doing really well. We'd love for it to be more. But the point is, we need all of you. It takes all of you. The gift of mercy, administration, whatever, everything that Romans 12 said, the spiritual gifts matter. We'd love for you to use them. If you're going, all right, okay, Davey, <clears throat> you got to me. What should I do? Come find me or Pastor Ben after the service. we got plenty of things we could get you to do. Every person matters, and a good leader administrates well. Now, I'm not suggesting that me or Pastor Ben or Matt or Amy or any of us are necessarily good leaders, but we do want you to hear this. You matter to God, and your role, therefore, matters to us. Now, even as we admit that, we have to admit that something is not as ideal, which is our second point this morning. Good leadership is temporary. Good leadership is temporary. I say that because good leaders don't last or good leaders don't remain good. We see that with Solomon. I'll tell you where the story's headed. Eventually, at the end of Solomon's life, he does not remain faithful. And by the time he dies, soon after, there becomes effectively a civil war and Israel's divided into two. And the decline becomes very stark after that. Solomon doesn't stay good. And all along, there have been hints in our first Kings reading that this is going to happen because the king's narrator is compiling a lot of history and he knows that this is where the story's headed. And so he's giving us little hints along the way. Last week, we noticed that Solomon married an Egyptian princess, which is one of the things that begins to lead Solomon astray. And he's worshiping in high places, which God said not to do. And in this passage, we have two more verses that give us hints that Solomon is not doing exactly everything he should be doing. The first hint is in verse 6. Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Wait a minute. Forced labor? Slavery? Yeah, they weren't supposed to have that. God did not want Israel to have slaves. God hates slavery. And all throughout Deuteronomy, God's saying, you need to take care of the person who's indebted, or the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, because you too were once slaves in Egypt. And because you too were once slaves in Egypt, it's your job to do what you can to set people free. So the fact that Solomon has a guy over forced labor is a breach of Deuteronomic law. It's just a little hint right there in verse 6. There's another hint. It happens in verse 26, which we didn't read. 
But verse 26 says, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses. This is a reference to Solomon's military might, that he's got 40,000 horses. I mean, this, Israel at this time was the most powerful geopolitical entity in the world, and this is a reference to the military might. Only one tiny problem. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, and the chapter of God's prophecy that Israel was have a king, and this is the way the king was supposed to act. God says, when you do have a king, he's not supposed to accrue a lot of horses. It says it explicitly in Deuteronomy 17, 16, because God's saying, I want them to rely on me more than they rely on their own military might. And here was Solomon accruing lots of horses. The hints here are that when the times are good, we don't usually reckon with the fact that good leadership is temporary, do we? When the times are good, we kind of ignore the little hints that things are not going the way they should be going. Don't we? We've been preaching 1 Kings as a decline narrative, saying that the direction of the story is mostly downhill, though it hasn't been yet, because we're using the narrative to make sense of our own time. But I bet if you're over the age of 25 or 30, you can think of some organization or entity or team that used to be great that you were a part of, or pretty good, and no longer is. I bet you've experienced the downfall. It's something that used to be good, but no longer is, because we don't reckon enough with the fact that good leadership is temporary. I used to hear that in my last church a lot. My last church in South Denver was started in 1980. And at the time, South Denver was growing a lot, and all these new subdivisions were going up all over the Denver Tech Center, but there was no church down there yet. And so another church started a new church further south that was also meeting at a high school, and on their very first Sunday, they had 500 people. And the pastor, the founding pastor, was so charismatic and such a good speaker that over the course of 12 years, the church went from 500 to over 3,000. It just grew rapidly. And when the Denver Broncos moved their practice facility just down the street from the church, practically the whole Denver Broncos started worshiping at the church, including John Elway. Times were good. But no one was reckoning enough with the fact that the senior pastor was a kind of a cult of personality and was a terrible shepherd of people. And he was a terrible shepherd of his quickly growing staff. And when he got an opportunity to get an even bigger church in Michigan, he bolted. It turns out his bag of tricks didn't go so well in Michigan, and 18 months later he found himself back in Denver. And he thought, I'll just do what I'm good at. And he started a new church within a mile of my old church. And overnight, that church went from about 2,700 people to about 1,400 people overnight. And all of a sudden, the founding pastor had split his old church because no one was reckoning when times were good with the fact that good leadership is temporary. And I'm not even sure good leadership is always good that we might say or think. 17 years later in 2011, I was uh, on the pastor's church committee to bring in uh, what would effectively be my new boss. And we got lots of comments from the old timers saying, hey, we need to bring Mark, the founding pastor. We need to bring Mark back. That's when times are good. Let's get the glory days back. People still couldn't reckon enough with the fact that good leadership was temporary and they never had a plan to make sure that that good leadership could last. Maybe the story you're thinking of went differently. Maybe it wasn't just such overt cunning and selfishness from the leader. Maybe an old church or organization had a good leader die suddenly, but there was no real plan for what to do. Maybe a bad leader replaced a retired leader. I bet many of you can think of examples like that. But I bet no matter what, you can think of an example 
where an organization used to thrive in good times but no longer is because people didn't reckon enough with the fact that good leadership is temporary. There are many ways we don't account for this reality. One is that we may budget in such a way that we expect the good times to last forever. And so we just keep not paying attention to long-term volatility and we are not, we're not accounting for that kind of risk. Or we may fawn over a good leader so much that we don't plan for his or her succession. Or we don't think about what if the good leader were to die suddenly? Do we have a succession plan? Do we have a way to make sure we could be viable? Or maybe, like folks at my old church, you pine for the glory days and hope for its return, ignorant of the fact that it's not going to. There are all manner of ways we are not wise to the fact that good leadership is temporary. And the irony is, the more you account for that fact, the more you account for the fact that good leadership is temporary, the more wise you'll be to make sure that good leadership lasts a little longer. If you have succession planning, if you do account for risk in your budget and these kinds of things, you can actually make sure the good leadership lasts longer. Now, however dour that may seem, let's not remain there. Let's, let's move quickly to our final point, shall we? Good leadership results in communal joy. Because of Solomon's good leadership, his good administration, continuing his father's policies, this is the height of Israel's power and influence. The first clue we get to that is that there is peace. Verse 21 tells us that there is peace from the Euphrates River, which is modern-day Iraq, all the way to Egypt. This is an enormous amount of territory. Verse 25 tells us the north-south markers. If those were east-west markers, the north-south markers are from Dan to Beersheba, way down here. This is the largest Israel will ever be, geographically speaking. And the key in verse 24 is that there is peace on all sides, north, south, east, and west. In fact, this peace is extended beyond even Israel. It says in verse 34 that the leaders of other nations are beginning to stream in to see Solomon's wisdom. Verses 29 through 33 are really all about how excited the narrator was about Solomon's wisdom. And it was so world-renowned that there was peace from all these nations wanting to hear from Solomon. Another result of Solomon's good leadership here is bounty, as we've already noted. Verse 20 says that Israel ate and drank and they were happy. And the most curious thing about that is it comes after 13 verses of talking about the Israeli IRS. Could you imagine that in America? Hey, this is our taxation system and here's, here's how we make sure that there's bounty for everybody and everybody's happy. After 13 verses of talking about the Israeli IRS. That's how you know times are good. That's how you know things are bountiful. In verse 28, which we didn't read, there's, still, there's enough food for the horses. And the peace and the bounty lead to communal joy, to feasting. It's really the center of the organizational passage of this whole chapter, highlighting the stuff in the middle, which is that Israel's feasting and they're happy. And in verse 22 and 23, Solomon, the king, is feasting. The idea behind this communal joy is that where the king is leading well and he is wise, even despite his faults, it results in blessing for everyone else too. As Pastor Peter Lightheart says, glory is not a zero-sum game. The more the king is doing the honorable things of leading, the more other people get the good results too. Or as Solomon would even write in Proverbs, because Solomon wrote and compiled Proverbs, Proverbs 11.10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. 
This called to my mind the upcoming Christmas season and the famous old movie, It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey is that man. George Bailey who gets, inherits his father's business, the buildings and loan company, but all he ever wants to do is get out of his small little town, Bedford Falls. And when the Great Depression happens and there's a run on the bank, he winds up giving away all of his honeymoon money and he winds up staying in Bedford Falls and he never gets to travel. He does marry his you know, young sweetheart and they do have kids and they fix up an old house, but George remains depressed because he never really got to realize his life's ambition. Meanwhile, there's the evil large bank magnate, Mr. Potter. And Mr. Potter wants to buy up all of Bedford Falls, and he wants to buy up George Bailey's building and loan, and he wants to you know, stick it to the people with difficult mortgages. And George Bailey doesn't really know what to do about it, but in a very dark moment of his life, a very depressed moment of his life, the angel from heaven comes. It's very saccharine 1930s, but it was beautiful because the angel shows him the future and says, this will be what it's like if you're not around. And in this imaginary future, he shows him Pottersville, taken over by the evil bank magnate, and the poor are squeezed and crushed, and there's no joy on the streets, and the people fight one another. And George Bailey realizes, if, if he weren't around, there'd be no joy. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So perhaps a good diagnostic we can apply to ourselves, as with Solomon, as with Bailey, George Bailey, if you weren't around, would there be less communal rejoicing? Now I'm not talking about would people be sad if you passed away suddenly. Of course they would. I would. What I'm talking about is the value add a leader brings to others' lives. Do we, do you contribute to greater communal joy such that if you weren't there, there would be less joy for everyone else? Of course, the irony here is that you cannot answer this question for yourself. Only the people around you can answer that question. So how many of you would be brave enough to go to the people around you and say, hey, if I weren't around, would there be less joy? Or would there be less anxiety? Maybe less uptightness? Or would there be less joy? Are you a leader by your good leadership and wisdom and feasting raises the communal joy around you? If you are not, I have good news for you. There is one who is perfectly righteous, who always brings the communal feast to those around him, Jesus Christ. And if you are a good leader, you're like, I I think really there would be less joy if I'm around. Whether you're aware of it or not, Jesus is the one who leads and empowers you to even be that way a little bit. Think about Jesus' life. His very first miracle was turning water from wine at a party, at a wedding. Turns wine from water. Sorry, I got that backwards. Sometimes I go backwards in my head. It's really strange. But my point is, look, Jesus was Lord of the Feast. And when he's about to die a sacrificial death, they're eating a feast. And what does he say? This feast is about me and the sacrifice I'm about to do. At the end of time in Revelation 19, when Jesus will come to destroy all evil and injustice, what is he going to do for his church, his bride? He's going to prepare a feast. We're going to be feasting forever. He's Lord of the feast. This is where everything is going. This is why when Solomon's feasting, it's the center of the passage. Because when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And there's no one perfectly righteous except Jesus. 
Do you want to feast? Then go to the one who is the perfect leader. Friends, the truth is we are just temporary leaders. None of us are permanent like Jesus is. And to the extent we can administrate well or be a good leader at all, the extent to which we can share the joy of the feast at all, is because we're going to the one who is the perfect leader for us, the Lord of the feast, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are invited into the feast every Sunday. May we feast evermore on Jesus in our hearts by faith. That we might, wherever we have leadership or authority, that we might do it well as you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.